0: Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at Filmstruck.com. Hello, and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. To those who delight in box office Shana Freude, Darren Aronofsky's mother has been the gift of the season. The film's poor score on CinemaScore made headlines, even though most people reporting it had probably never heard of that site beforehand. Behold the power of press releases. But we're interested in art, or something like it, and not B.O., To investigate the film's unique technical approach, Film Comment Editor-in-Chief Nicholas Rapold, sat down with Aronofsky last Friday. Here's their conversation.
1: This is the Film Comment Podcast, and we're here talking with Darren Aronofsky, the director of Mother and many other very powerful films. Thank you. Thank you. Nice to see you. Yeah, thanks so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Absolutely. I just want to start out by saying... Because a lot of people are trying to figure out if there's, you know, what the meaning is, trying to peg an interpretation of the film. But I just want to start by saying it's a stunning technical accomplishment.
2: Thank you. Which I think can get lost. Yeah. I think people, when they see it like a second time, like Michelle Pfeiffer at Venice was like, oh, I finally sort of saw some of the filmmaking. Because the film overall is really very tense. And I think people are sort of sitting there waiting to see how they're going to get hit next. And when they realize... It's not that worrisome. Then they can sort of sit back and see all the different stuff. And it, it bums me out because so much of the focus has been what it's about and not about Jennifer and Javier's incredible contribution and my crew. I mean, everyone from costumes, Danny Glicker to Matthew Lebatique, the cinematographer. And the editing was a 53-week edit. Wow. There's more visual effects in this movie than there were in Noah. Wow, okay. <laughs> well,
1: I I'd, I'd love to talk a bit about that cuz yeah, sure. yeah.
2: I was curious, you know, cuz it's so seamless. It's just
0: yeah. this
1: one seamless that's part of what makes it uh so immersive but also so terrifying cuz you're in it. Yeah. <laughs> and there's no getting out of it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um I mean, how much were you using when you're putting shots together? Or, uh, wh- where is the uh, you know, computer animation going for that?
2: Yeah, I mean, basically everything from slight speed changes and how the camera moves to actually splitting frames in half and speeding up certain sides of the frames and others. It's kind of a trick I learned in Requiem for a Dream. It's very easy. You can sort of um, manipulate stuff like that. But it was all about, you know, when you're on set, you're at an incredible pace and rush because everything is really expensive Um, and you get things pretty damn close. But also on set, you don't quite see everything. You think you are seeing a lot of it, but there's always things you're missing So that when you get back to the edit room and you have a chance to study everything that you've captured, Mm -hmm. um, you start to play around and tweak stuff. And now with digital tools, it's really interesting. I mean, the film was shot on 16 millimeter, which is the negative is like smaller than a postage stamp. It's Mm -hmm. tiny. Um, But there's still a lot of room that you can play around with and and fun things that you can do. Yeah. Is there any sequence
1: you could kind of walk us through in terms of that that involved a lot of that kind of?
2: um, Well, like, for instance, um, when she's in labor. Um, there's a scene with the Molotov cocktail um, goes off and then she has a labor attack. The camera vibrates and it's something I, I, um, I guess I first did the vibrating cam on, um, I had them in Pi and also in Requiem when they were in jail. Um, I had that and I wanted to do the same thing. But this time we don't just shake the frame. We're able to, because of digital tools, just sh- keep her kind of sharp and shake everything around her. Um, So we did that, and at the same time, like, I wanted to start giving the sense that she's really connected to the house so that later on in the film when she actually causes an earthquake in the house, it's sort of built so, like, there's pieces of plaster falling off the wall as well, and that's all digital. So little things like that that just sort of – that you add as you go along was – it was a very different process than my previous films because – I spent so much time in pre-production on the previous films on the script. Um, This one was written so quickly and executed quickly on purpose to try and see what it would become, what that type of um, emotion would be like, bringing a different type of approach to the filmmaking process. And it also meant that while we were editing the film, we were still developing shots.
1: Yeah, and well, the way where I read it, that you you wrote it in basically a weekend or so.
2: Yeah, it was a five day. The first the initial, initial <laughs> burst was a five day weekend. I was alone, and I had the idea two weeks earlier. And during those two weeks, I figured out the kind of structure, the kind of biblical um, narrative that was going to be the structure of the film, and that was the breakthrough that allowed me to just plow through it. What
1: was like the germ? You meant you said that you kind of had the idea before then, and then what was the? I think there was two germs.
2: It, it, Right, I, I think it's kind of three strands that braid together into, like, one river. Um, one of them being uh, the Bible stuff, which is a structural element. And then there's a, um, a very personal story about an artist with his um, caregiver and um, their divorce starting to happen. And that was, like, the emotional heart of the story that was the most human part of the story. And then I had a larger allegory idea, which was kind of influenced by Boonwell's Exterminating Angel, which was um, take something really big and hard to understand and reduce it to something small. So trying to capture the spirit and the the journey of Mother Nature and stick her into a single home and uh, then let the history of the world happen in front of her. Yeah. It's a
1: tall toll order <laughs> to all that. I mean, what what attracts you? Because in a way, this comes full circle back to Pi, which you also worked with then already with Maddie LeBatique uh, yeah. on that, and that kind of immersion and subjective, and also setting yourself rules yeah. in a way for the types of shots you would do. What keeps you coming back to that kind of, I don't want to say, not constraints because it yeah. sounds negative, but those kind of rules yeah. and stuff. Yeah.
2: Well, I, I, I think, you know, my mentor Stuart Rosenberg always said that there's only one place for the camera to be in every scene, and I think how I interpret that is: you look at the thematic, you look at the theme of what the movie's about, then you look about, look at um, what that scene in particular is telling, and that would really help you dictate where to stick the camera for emotional reasons. But in reality, there's many, many ways to tell a story, and you sort of have to figure out how you're going to limit your film grammar. So what type of shots are you going to use? What What are you going to do? And this one, we went to a real extreme place. We wanted to do a fully subjective movie, which is something we tried to pull off in pie, but um, I still had wide shots in pie. I, I kind of wanted to do a film that was three shots over Jen's shoulder, on her face, and her POV. Mm-hmm. So it's very immediate. It's just like you are that person, and you're experiencing... You know, as much as cinema can put you into another character's head, you're getting as deep as you can into the experience of this character. And it just meant that Jen had to be this kind of perfect tour guide because if you see something, no matter how weird it is, when you cut back to Jen, she had to have a reaction that the audience could go, it could sort of still relate to her. Otherwise, you lose the audience. And so that was the big ultimate challenge cuz in filmmaking the big cheat is wide shots. Every filmmaker will tell you that. You could always pop out to the wide shot and then if the camera is not in the exact same place, it doesn't matter cuz there's no continuity. If the emotion's not in the same place, it's it's a break for the audience. Or if you have an insert. Those are the two things, something really small or something really large, which we didn't have either when we got to the edit room. Yeah. Another thing that that's that was interesting is that a story like this it could easily become just
1: a spectacle. But because you don't have those wide shots, those kind of, you know, like a a disaster movie is like all about the spectacle. You know, this is a disaster movie, but it's like a subjective disaster. That's interesting.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I never thought of that. Um, And that's a cool observation. And I I don't think it was. Yeah, I I guess we wanted to make it experiential and painful for her as much as we could. Yeah. Do you think there's something I was trying to figure this out? Do you think there's something
1: inherently painful or terrifying about the subjective camera because it just seems to be something that people have a strong re- reaction to, and often when you see it used, it's it's for a moment, usually if, I mean something a pretty brief. nervous, yeah, <laughs> a brief yeah. Yeah. I mean, why is it? Why is it so? I don't know.
2: I don't know. I mean, I guess it depends on the character you're in in their head. If you're, you know. It can be used, I think, effectively for all different types of emotions and just to bring you close. I don't know. I've just always been interested, and it was just um, it was a friend from college who was a film buddy of mine, and we were watching Jacob's Ladder, and there was right at the end of Jacob's Ladder, there's a shot of the little boy in heaven or something, and my friend said that's an objective shot, and I had no idea what he was talking about. This I was just learning filmmaking, and then I realized uh, I started to get what he meant and see how that film was all mm-hmm. from the point of view of the postman mm-hmm. and so um i don't know i i i think theater you're sort of watching from the audience and that's kind of where cinema started but the beauty of film is the fact that you know you can be a piece of pie and you can get into it and just basically you'd be spinning with the character and i think this is the most extreme version, when you get rid of the wide shot and you just kind of make it all about this one character's experience and how they're experiencing the world, that's, there's something pure about that that I was looking for. Yeah, there's something that you're aware of being in that body or you know with that yeah. body that the
1: that wider shot doesn't necessarily give you.
2: Yeah, I've heard some critique of the film that it feels like a video game, which I was like, that's not really a critique to me. <laughs> I, I grew up on video games. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I imagine was ask about that's, that. yeah. yeah, I imagine that somewhat influences. I think that's how a lot of us see the world in a certain way.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. The, well, I mean, you, you know, the... through an avatar right? type of thing. Yeah. Or the, or the first person shooter. Yeah. I was trying to think what you'd call this first person earth. <laughs> <something>. <laughs> that's hilarious. I don't know. What's great about the movie is, is is that it's like you have a kind of a Hitchcockian level of control and seamlessness to the shots in connecting to each other, but then you would just have this, you know, like I'm just trying to think of something really extreme, but like Gaspar Noe, that that kind of like headlong thing. That together is it's very potent.
2: Yeah, I guess so. You know, I'm a big fan of both. So, um, and sometimes I'd be sitting there going, "Is this, you know." Am I too far? And I go. What would Gaspar do?
1: There's <laughs> <laughs> a frightening prospect. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: I mean, because it, it's it's it does seem clear, like from some aud- audience reactions, that it just overwhelms people. I think you know, it's like it is like being in a nightmare. And for some people, that's pleasurable or interesting. For others, it's just you know, it's it's too much.
2: Yeah, we always knew it was going to be a very strong cup of coffee. <laughs> and um but that's what we were making i think we were really just trying to be truthful to the allegory and um i mean people you know it's like we're all bouncing on the sink you know not listening to all the warnings there's been a lot of like very calm warnings and now the warnings are starting to get more severe and so for me that that's kind of what drove me passionately to go down this path and just to be truthful to what is in the headlines of any newspaper you flip through. If you actually look through the headlines and look at what's really happening and really imagine it, it's gruesome.
1: Can't argue with that.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and I'm mean, just
1: on just the, the previous idea about the kind of disturbing things for for an audience. Uh, I mean, obviously the whole you know feeling of it and and the greater idea of of, of the earth. But uh, I also read somewhere that you did cut some scenes out. I'm just curious, what would be an example? Some of you thought that. Where
2: was- you read that? Yeah. I don't know if Some I actually did. Someone asked edited. me, and I oh, really? tra- or I remember them publicity asking me if I had any cut scenes that they could, you know, use to help sell the film. And I don't. There, wa- there were the very few things that got cut. There was a scene with um, an actor I work with, Lot Stanley Herman, but he, that got trimmed. But nothing really, because it's so linear, the film, and because everything is consequential of what came before it. It was very different, the editing process, than, you know, any other movie I've done. In in The Wrestler, you could take a scene and slide it three scenes earlier and see how that affected things. There was no doing that in this because it's just such a singular, progressive shot and and, uh, movement of emotion. Especially once we get to the fever dream uh, with that last 30 minutes of the movie when everything from the hair to the makeup to the set was just, you know orchestrated so that you know um it just led in one direction so you couldn't really take her out of any part of it and put her in somewhere else right so the so the the uh, 53 week editing it was
1: was that something that was kind of almost uh cumulative like you'd have to proceed very slowly because in each case you're also deciding whether you need to add speed something up or change yeah
2: something like that. you know now it feels like a long ago dream <laughs> of yeah. sitting in that room for that long but um there were a lot of complications there were the the shots were very complicated. I decided to shoot it in a really really hard way. I just bit you know, I bit off a big bite and not only was I going to do you know, just this limited coverage, I tried to link it in these very long shots that I call these master shots and we'd spend the first half of the day um basically doing 15 takes of this master shot, which would start over her shoulder, she would walk, we'd spin around, be on her face, she would walk, we'd spin around, be over her shoulder. Just that type of um, choreography was going on with blocking and camera. Um, And then we just had to go through very, very slowly in incredible detail looking at every piece of footage we had because I think technically they were such hard shots that... None of them were ever quite perfect, so then we settle on the best one, and then we figure out how digitally we can manipulate it to make it right, right on. Yeah, and
1: I mean, it, it obviously helps. How, what a I don't know magician, Matty Libatique is with, with shots. I mean, everything I see that he does, he's like he's he's like sort of a next generation of cinematographer that somehow combines like the you know the the mobility of like digital digitally trained cinematographers with the elegance of Steadicam. Yeah. he does all of that that's kind yeah. of is it, i mean i wonder if you could just talk about how he's you know useful to you in, the, in those ways
2: we we have a great collaboration it's like our six film together as well there was a lot of student films too so it's probably more than that what was what was the very first thing you shot together i'm curious we uh i think he operated he just reminded me he operated this um the f- third or fourth day of film school in what year would that be 92 93 we were both the youngest in the class. I was the youngest director, and he was the youngest DP He was from Queens. I was from Brooklyn. Yeah. We both grew up with hip hop and so we just had a lot of the same references and immediately you know we started to get on and enjoy each other um and I think he operated my first uh student um like exercise where you had to do one shot um and i did a, I actually did a because my one of my teachers was Mikolos Yangsho. Do you know who that is? Oh, yeah. yeah. Wow. Talk so about when I was, seamless long. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so the guy who invented it, he was yeah. my teacher when I was in undergrad. Wow. And so I did this one shot, long shot for um, my first thing, and he operated it. So we met there, and then we shot a few things together. Oh, that's great. But talking about Maddie, um, we have a great kind of, you know, all the light is Maddie. Like, I I barely get involved. Every once in a while, I'll be like, is that too dark? Is that too light? But 99% of it is Maddie, the color, the light. I mean, the color is something all the departments work on together. I'm much more focused on camera movement and blocking. And Maddie definitely contributes to that. But that's kind of where we break down Mm -hmm. and stuff. But for me, the look of this film is, you know, it just came a lot. It just has a very different feel and look than anything you see out there oh yeah definitely. kind of
1: cool yeah that's why i started with just talking about that cool comedy. it's not like it was weird when people wouldn't mention it. it's not like you get films like this every day <laughs> you know there's a reason why even if you dislike it you're disliking it so strongly and part yeah. of it is the, is the technique you know
2: yeah i'm not sure though i think the dislike is from the subject matter yeah. i mean as well no just part. Yeah. Of it, but yeah, i think it's overpowering yeah. it is, because yeah. it's like very much in your face. And as you said, some people are not ready for that. Yeah. And then uh, most people don't see the filmmaking, which is weird. You know, yeah. they just don't see it. Yeah. Which could be a sign that, you know, the success of it,
1: right? I guess, maybe, yeah. They are yeah. in their head, yeah. Um, I wanted to just also talk about the directing the actors since, since you know, orchestrating all that in, in the context of this also seems like a challenge. And also just keeping up the fever pitch for for so much of it and and the the slow build I mean because yeah. you can't exactly tell them, okay in the allegory, you're this, this is you know i mean how, how do you how do you develop the characters with uh, them? I
2: was very straightforward with the allegory mm-hmm. with them, okay, and mm-hmm. I told them that, but I also then gave them real characters to play uh-huh. um but the characters, even the characters, had a lot of symbolism in them, you know, they have no names it was right. the, s- the surgeon and his wife and the brothers that's what we call them. And um, I think that allowed them to sort of stretch a wire between those two things, something very real and human, and then something symbolic. And I could definitely give them direction from the symbolism that would help them. A good example would be um, Michelle Pfeiffer, who kind of is Eve (laughs) in the movie and is great. But thinking about Eve, I was trying to figure out who she was in the Bible and... I realized she's kind of mischievous. Um, you know, it's kind of naughty what she did. Um, that's one way of interpreting it. There's many ways of interpreting it, but that was how I decided to do it. And and I gave that to Michelle, and um, she just ran with it and became this cat playing with Jen Lawrence, the the, the mouse. Right. <laughs> and it was great. It was great to watch. So, but, And she was also able to interpret to a certain type of person that, is recognizable to many people. People have been around those people, those Larry David type of people who can't help themselves, <laughs> yeah, and say what they say. I like the Eve
1: as as the first Larry David. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, true. It does seem like it, it's sort of like a ordeal <laughs> in, in in doing it. And I, I, you know, I couldn't tell reading reports how much that was overstated or not. But it just, just seems ex- exhausting. How long was the
2: act, the shoot? Yeah, for it's acting? over. It's overstated. Okay, I mean, that's we what I thought. Yeah. I, I thought I'd ask. You know. It was it was an event, but it wasn't okay. like the event. Right? Um, you know, I think it was exhausting for Jen because she's in every shot, and you know, I've done this before with Mickey, and it's very hard for them because you know they they don't get oh we're shooting someone else for two days you have two <laughs> days off oh come on back they have to be ready every day and <clears throat> the whole production runs around their schedule so it's it's a lot, um, but. She is totally a light switch actor, which is basically when you call cut, it's Jen Lawrence. When you call action, it was mother. And they never really, um, that's not true. Sometimes mother would, like when she knew her back was to the camera, she would ask me something from Jen. That's how easy it is for her to slide in and out of it. Yeah. But she's this autodidact who's completely taught herself how to act. And it's um, it just shows you how. In some ways, I mean, maybe it's because her, of her vast talent, but how easy it really is. Well, you
1: know, even just watching further back, something like The Hunger Games, being able to carry a imaginative vehicle like that movie, you know, yeah. it, it takes a certain <laughs> presence confidence. and confidence. Yeah. yeah,
2: which she has a lot of. Yeah.
1: I just wanted to kind of talk about filmmakers again. I mean, you mentioned Benwell uh, a bit, and we mentioned Gas- Gaspar Noe. I, if with Pi, and, uh, were, were there other filmmakers that kind of, you saw and thought this, this is possible. The sort of thing I want to do this kind of subjective cinema. Um,
2: Oh, subjective cinema. I, I, that's a good question uh, where I came from. I think we developed that language kind of out of necessity because we only had one actor. Yeah. And so we decided to turn into an advantage. So like this kind of the exploration of the subjective came from, poverty uh-huh. and not having any uh, much else to do except for shoot Sean yeah. uh, in the film. And I think during that I came up with this idea, oh, you know, I could only shoot over his shoulder. I couldn't shoot. If he's talking to someone else in the scene, I couldn't shoot over their shoulder. Yeah. So ideas like that have been percolating around mm-hmm. since the beginning. But I think it came from just constantly thinking about how to put the audience into the character's head over right. and over again.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, cause you know, yeah, that's, that's often like a part of a movie or a particular sequence, or like in Hitchcock, you know, you can have a long, beautiful sequence where it is and it's almost dreamlike cause it's a departure right. from the rest, rest of it. Um, but, but to do a movie that's mostly that.
2: It's, uh, it's, it's and, all that in this yeah, one, and in, that, in Mother, yeah. that was the, yeah. could, you know, what would it be for people? And I think, you know, some people love the ride, some people don't, I mean, another element of that was not being able to have a score which was terrifying. We actually worked on a score for um, five months, me and Johan Johansson, one of the great composers, and he wrote beautiful music. And the second we put the music into the movie, something wasn't working. Mm -hmm. And what I figured out at the time was that the audience is leaning in to figure out what Jen is thinking about all this crazy stuff that's happening. Mm -hmm. So if you give a hint to the audience of how to feel you're actually cheating them of that experience. But having done a little press about it, I also realized that music is objectivity. It's the director hmm. coming in and saying, feel this. Okay. And that was undermining the whole idea of this film, which was to make a purely subjective film from her experience so that every element of sound design, everything you see is all to sort of give you the experience of being in mother's head. Right, right.
1: I, I think actually that might be what's pretty disturbing. Maybe something is one of the things as simple as that is not having the musical cues that you're yeah. s- so used to. I mean, this is kind of a pet peeve of mine in
2: documentary that like you have documented <laughs> all over. I don't think that's a bad pet peeve actually. Cause it's, it's truly, it undermines the objectivity immediately. Yeah. Cause yeah. you're telling, you know, the audience how to feel about something, but now you're going to ruin docs for me. Okay. <laughs> that's, be able to stop thinking of <laughs> Triumph of the human spirit.
1: Yeah. Um, Oh, one, one other thing that came to mind I don't think we touched on is the actual set and, yeah. and the construction of that.
2: So you had a whole house in a studio or something like that? Uh, well, we actually built the house twice. Okay. <laughs> we, we built the first floor alone out in a field because I, I didn't want to do daylight exteriors or I guess daylight interiors with daylight coming through the windows without real beautiful greenery. I knew Maddie's talented and gifted, but I don't think anyone could ever recreate what real light does in, in a real environment. Right. So we just built the first floor, and we started off out in this field, and we did all the daylight, the interior, exteriors, whatever, but all the daylight sequences in the house. And then we moved, like after a couple of weeks of that, we moved into a stage um, where we built a three-story house, the full house. We were able to recycle a lot of the materials and all the furniture and stuff like that. And then we were able to then have the house sort of descend into this madness. But it was interesting because the set was built not like a typical Hollywood set where you put your fist through the wall and there's a hole. Mm -hmm. You know, we had to build it all with lath and plaster with pipes and wire behind it because we wanted to all feel, when they started to rip it apart, that it was real.
1: And so you have to almost commit... To, to that though, like uh, at any point where you're like, eh, I kind of wish that the house was a little different at this point, or it's because it's, it's almost yeah. at that point with, with a house like that, it's almost here. I'm, I'm going back to an interview I read with you about yeah. Pi where you talked about Rod Serling, and I almost thought yeah. about this is almost like a TV set, you know, of uh, the 50s 60s playhouse variety where you're moving around it. And yeah. watching one of those old ones, it's amazing to me how much the camera did move around. I, I didn't was not aware of that, but you watched some on of Rod that. Serling, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah they it's did amazing. great
2: stuff. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I've gotten a few people saying it feels like Twilight Zone. And um, there's a great quote by Rod Serling, someone sent me about how writers, their job is to um, reflect the political situation of the world and to, you know, present that to an audience. I forget exactly the words, but it was very beautifully said by him. Um, And he was definitely a huge influence on me. And when I was in eighth grade i was writing book reports about rod serling not abraham lincoln you know <laughs> he was the That's guy great. i studied so yeah i mean i think i think uh moving the camera but to go back oh, th- there were definitely things with the house with suddenly we're trying to get the camera somewhere and there's like a freaking wall there <laughs> and it's a real wall because right. we're gonna rip it apart mean, later <laughs> so we can't take it out and we'd have to work with it you know and uh, but there were definitely things and we were like this was a bit of a mistake you know mm-hmm. that you don't figure out till you're walking through there's yeah. also a lot of steps ups and down in right. the house yeah. which helped the reason we put them there besides the making it more interesting and how we move through the house it also teaches the audience like oh you go down two steps into the kitchen mm-hmm. and then oh that's that bathroom you go two steps back up and that's then you're in the surgeon's bedroom and so all that stuff you know, I think we're helping it, but they were very, very difficult to move a camera through those spaces. Yeah. What what happened to the set, I'm curious. At the end. Yeah. <laughs> um To be honest, there wasn't much left of it by the time we got done. <laughs> I mean the last shots of the movie we started burning the walls right. <laughs> up. Um so it was pretty it was pretty it was just about, you know, fixing stuff. A lot of the furniture ended up um being spread amongst all of us in our <laughs> homes because it was nice stuff uh, that's so somewhere someone has the sink no, the sink's gone <laughs> the i'm sink's sure gone. The sink's gone. yeah i'm glad you went to the sink though because the sink is <laughs> yeah. once again like kind of where we are yeah. did i bring that up already we, we, bit, we, we, we talked about yeah that.
1: definitely yeah i mean it's it's yeah
2: precarious not listening going yeah, right
1: back exactly to it again and again yeah right. that's, <laughs> i mean where did we where, just to pick that where does that like image or idea where did that come from the idea of a the, the sink being this fragile. I didn't even know what a sink... What's the word again? The, braced. Bra- I didn't even know what a sink brace was before. The... Yeah,
2: I mean, just braced underneath. <laughs> oh, braced, okay. Up. Yeah. I mean, I've done a bunch of construction. Okay. <laughs> so I have a little experience with... Uh, it, it was funny because, you know, um, the architect who I worked with, a couple of them came to the screening at Radio City, and they were like, I'm great, you know, I'm her, and they, they completely related to it. So okay. I, I'm curious how architects and builders will relate to the film <laughs> because right. there's that element that i wasn't even aware i was bringing it i just um i'm trying to think where the sink idea came from but it it was in those initial five days it just made sense and you know connected to that bible story of the flood and so it just made sense yeah yeah well you could get a you get a
1: pull quote from architecture digest
2: <laughs> you know what <laughs> we, worst nightmare <laughs> we almost got into architecture digest oh, yeah. on the house we got really close but it didn't happen <laughs> unfortunately
1: well, their loss yeah exactly um well great i my, my you know the usual closing question although probably you're just glad to have it rest at this point but yeah. i'm curious what if you're writing anything or working on no,
2: it is going to be rest for a little bit yeah. i i you know you got to wait for the fire to start burning there's a bunch of things we've been developing mm-hmm. and then i look back through that list and see if any of them start to stir the pot again yeah, yeah. you know yeah. Well, great well thanks thank again you. so thank you very much thank We're you a great interview. thank you
0: You've been listening to the Film Comment podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold, and edited by Violet Luca. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcommentcom slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment. At the heart of film culture for over 50 years.